0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info@thedistrictchurch. That's great. I guess you guys didn't get what you wanted for Christmas this year. That's cool. Um, my name is Josh, as Julia said. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the District Church, and it is Always a joy, always an honor to be able to open up God's Word uh, and worship through learning about who He is and the nature and character of what He reveals to us about Himself. Um, This morning we are starting a new sermon series. Um, If you guys see on the screen, it's called Epiphany. Um, and what we're talking about when it comes to Epiphany uh, is that Christ is, has manifested himself here on earth. Um, if you're familiar with the church tradition, or if you're familiar with the church calendar, um, Advent, right? What we just celebrated where Jesus came and the darkness was invaded by the light. That's what we celebrate in Jesus' coming birth Um And Epiphany tends to be actually a weekend, uh, or for some, it tends to be the time in which Advent's over and um, Easter is going to begin. So that period is what Epiphany would be, where Jesus' life has been manifested on earth, um, and it it changes everything. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, is how Jesus Christ and what He came and did on the cross, the gospel, changes everything. Um, and how we're going to take a look at that is through our vision, our vision for the district church. Now, typically what I like to do, and I was telling, I think, Ransford this, um, this morning, I might have been telling everybody, but whatever. Um, typically what this, this sermon is, for most churches, is, as one termed it, a throwaway sermon. It's the one where like, hey, we're in between Christmas and New Year's, like people are like, what day is it? What time? What am I doing? Um, and oftentimes, even with church, it's like, okay, you know, this is the, right before the beginning of the new year. Let's bring in the second guy, which, yes, you can consider me that. Twain's <laughs> not here, so let's just call for what it is. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, and, and typically, like we, we don't treat it like that. Um, I actually love doing this sermon uh, because for me, um, and I don't know if any of you in here are like this, when New Year starts, it's brand new resolutions, brand new lists, brand new things to check off and go, hey, look what I accomplished. And as a Enneagram type three, I love to see that list of this is what I accomplished. And I don't like to look at what I didn't accomplish um, because then I just move them to the next year. Um, but normally what we do is we try to preach that sermon of why is it good to look at resolutions, um, and and I love to do that just to show us from a perspective of this is why resolutions are good, this is why it is good to, to focus on things that can help grow us as people, um, and more importantly, into the image of Christ. And so, Even though we're not technically doing a New Year's type of sermon, we are going to start off our epiphany series taking a look at what it means to be a gospel-centered disciple. And so even though I might not say, hey, these are a bunch of resolutions that we can try to follow in 2020, I am going to show you from Colossians, so if you have your Bible, you can open to Colossians chapter 1, where Paul writes um, a description of a gospel-centered disciple. And so just like our resolutions that we might set for 2020, or just like resolutions we might set for our life, taking a look at what Paul has to say about being a gospel-centered disciple is is just as important. It is laying that foundation for us to be able to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. But before I jump into that, I want to kind of just lay out our vision for the church In case you guys have never heard it, if you guys have never read it online, um, because this is what we're going to be diving into the next couple of weeks. Today, we're going to take a look at the holistic view of a gospel centered disciple, but for the next coming weeks, we're going to take a look at the individual pieces. As you can see, this is what the picture represents a mosaic of sorts where we grow into by walking and committing ourselves to these aspects of a gospel centered disciple. we begin to grow in community, we begin to grow within ourselves, um, and we begin to grow into the image of Christ. And so our vision for the district church when it comes to who we are and what we're setting out to accomplish, not just this year, but as the Lord allows us to, to be a church, is this. We exist to glorify God by making disciples through gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered community, gospel-centered service, and gospel, gospel-centered multiplication. Now, I know that I use that phrase, gospel-centered, a lot, and we are explicitly redundant about it because we understand that without the gospel, there is no hope. There is no hope for salvation. There is no hope for belonging. There is no hope for true service, and there is no hope for making disciples without the gospel, and there is no hope for this city and this world without the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is what we're going to take a look at in the next coming weeks. So what I want to do today is kind of give you the overview of what a gospel-centered disciple looks like and our, as Paul says, our toil in trying to present you as mature believers in Christ. So if you guys will, let me go ahead and pray for us this morning, and then we'll jump into Colossians chapter 1. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the songs that we've just sung about your beauty and your character and, and your forgiveness of sins. Lord, we do, we do sing all, all hail King Jesus. Because without you, Lord, we, we are just blind. We are dead in our sin. There's no good within us. But you came into the darkness and shined the light of the gospel in our lives, Lord. And so, Lord, as that light penetrates every area of our life and and changes everything about us, Lord, uh, may we praise that. Even in the hard times, even as your word says, even in the pruning, Lord, may we praise your work because we know that it is making us into the image of your son. And so this morning, as we open up your word, as we we see what it looks like to be a gospel-centered disciple, help it to grow us. Help it to be a foundation for us to be able to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Colossians chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some around you. And if there's not because it doesn't look like it, they will be on the screen so you can follow along. Starting in verse 3, this is what Paul writes. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you have learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So right off the bat, Paul is writing to the Colossians and letting them know, Hey, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you to grow in your knowledge of the Lord and for you to bear fruit. And so this is what I want to take a look at this morning is what does it mean to be a gospel-centered disciple? So if you have a pen and paper, if you're writing notes, if you have your phone, anything that you can write on, this is what I want you to do. We're going to have a little exercise. Um, I want you to answer this question. I'm going to give you a minute to answer it. You're not going to have to turn it in to me. It's okay. The reason I want to do this is I want you to see this. What you give is your answer, and then by the end of the sermon, I want to see if they come together. But I want you to answer, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? You can answer it from the text. You can answer it from what you've learned about Christian history. Whatever it may be, answer that question. What is a disciple? I'll give you a minute. Go ahead. Okay, pencils down. Okay, so now that you have that answer, I want you to keep that. And I want to give you my answer from the text and where I want to go this morning. So a gospel-centered disciple from Paul's words is a person who is redeemed and forgiven, who has been brought out of the darkness into the marvelous light and are, get, are growing in their knowledge of God and are bearing fruit. So I'm going to repeat that again. A gospel-centered disciple is a person who is redeemed and forgiven, who has been brought out of the darkness into the marvelous light. And they are growing in their knowledge of God and bearing fruit. So I want you to see in this passage that they are first redeemed, and I'm sorry for my handwriting, but it is what it is. Their characteristics are that they grow and bear. So they're redeemed and then they grow and bear. That's what we see in Colossians 1. Now here's why this is important. Because for us to be able to do the same, we need to be able to take this in and see what it means to grow and to bear. But before we jump into that, what I want to take a look at is that first aspect of these are a redeemed people as Paul writes in the end of his passage here he says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins so this is where we have to start when it comes to a gospel centered disciple as we have to understand that it starts with the gospel Now, it doesn't end there, but it continues on in transforming us and making us into the image of Christ. So Romans 1.16 tells us that salvation is the power of God, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power unto salvation, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So it's the power to save, and it's the power to make us into the image of Christ. And so if we want to look at it like this, and I will get out of the way for my people over here, I promise. This is our life before conversion. And then there is a moment for believers that the Holy Spirit shows us that we are sinful and it makes us aware of God's holiness. And the Holy Spirit reveals to us as we are changing and being regenerated that there is a gap. And that gap is our sin and God's holiness, and there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to get across or bridge that gap. But what the gospel shows us is that Jesus Christ on the cross has made a way, has bridged that gap for us. And so as we become more aware of God's holiness, as we become more aware of our sin, we realize that we need a Savior, and that Savior is Christ. And when we trust in him for redemption and forgiveness, believing in faith that his work on the cross has bridged that gap, that his work on the cross has also taken on the wrath of God for our sin, as 2 Corinthians reminds us, that he was made, he who who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ has bridged that gap in order for us to be sons and daughters of God. This is the gospel This is the good news, that God is an infinite wisdom and in his infinite love made a way to bridge the gap for sinners like you and me. While we get this, we're enemies towards him. It's not that we had some goodness within us that we could muster up in order to be saved by him. It's not that he looked down and was like, you know what, Josh, you're a good person. I want you a part of my team. No, he sees us as enemies. He sees us as against him. And yet he still chose to send his son in order to save us. He showed grace to sinners like you and I. Now, I can't tell you about what it looks like to be a gospel-centered disciple before I talk about the gospel. We can't start with a gospel-centered disciple without going to the gospel first. And it's important. And here's why I think it's important. Because I think our day and age, whether it's my generation or just 2019, 2020, and the rest of our, our days here on earth, is that we're in danger of what D.A. Carson says is assuming the gospel. And what I mean by that is D.A. Carson, a theologian, I don't, he's not a pastor, Trinity Evangelical School. He is the dean there or the president, whatever. We can Google it later. He wrote a study on the Mennonites, and he wrote a study about three generations of Mennonites and how the first generation believed and understood and agreed and knew the why and the how of the gospel. They knew why they needed the gospel and they knew how the gospel transformed everything in their lives. But then the second generation, we see, assumed it. So instead of the first generation teaching the how and the why, they just said, hey, let's use these jargons of gospel-centered people Let's gospel this, gospel that, and and never really talking about why and how it's important and how it changes everything. And so that second generation assumed it. And you know what what it says when we assume something, right? I'm not going to go there because there's children in the room. Um, But that second generation assumed it. And in assuming, the third generation that they taught that they grew up rejected it. And so my fear for this church and my fear for this world, especially within the Christian culture, is that we are assuming the gospel because we come to the table and say a lot of church jargon, but we never get to the gospel. We never start with why it's important and how the gospel changes everything, because it does, and it's important for us to see that. The gospel is not just us putting our trust in God and that's the door into the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't start there and end there. But it continues. It's not just salvation. But it's the means in which we are transformed into the image of God. It's not just deliverance from sin's penalty, but it's the power over sin in our lives. It's what makes it's not what just makes us right, as we would say justification. But it frees us to delight in God, which is our sanctification. So the gospel changes everything. And here's, I wanna give you examples of how it changes everything, because I don't wanna assume that you know how it changes everything. It helps us forgive those who have wronged us, it helps us look at people who have wronged us and go, you know what, in Christ, I'm forgiven. And therefore, I can forgive you. Now, I'm not saying in forgiveness that means that you just open up your arms and let somebody who's hurt you in. I think that there's wisdom in, in how you work in relationships like that. But the bitterness, the root of envy and anger, can be let go because you can forgive those who've wronged you, because you have been forgiven much. It helps us see that our jobs, our neighborhoods, our grocery stores, our coffee shops are filled with people who are in the dark. And as 2 Peter tells us, we have been brought out of the domain of darkness into the marvelous light so that we can take that marvelous light back into the darkness. We're not just meant to sit around here and sing worship songs and then go home and never talk about the gospel. That would make the gospel very shallow It helps us see that our money, our time, our resources are gifts given to us by God and we can be freed to give those away and we don't have to hold on to them as idols. It helps us have deep abiding joy in the midst of suffering. How can a mom who's miscarried a child for the second and third time have hope and joy It's because of the gospel. How can a 23-year-old be diagnosed with cancer and almost die and have hope and joy? It's because of the gospel. How can we believe and know that this world isn't just the ending here and that sin will reign? Because of the hope of the gospel. Because of what we learned in Advent, that the darkness will not be overcome by the light. I'm sorry. The darkness will be overcome by the light. It helps us let people in to our lives. And what I mean by that is it helps us let people into our brokenness. Because Christ gives us our value. Because Christ gives us our worth. When we let people in to our brokenness, we don't have to be worried about what they might think about us and how we're getting it wrong. Because we often do. But it's because of the gospel that we can say, hey, yeah, this is, this is my mess. And I know because of the gospel, I'm not gonna sit in this mess. But here it is, and I'm opening up, and I'm sharing my life and my, my vulnerability with you. And because of the gospel, we can take that and, and sit with them and bear with them. You see, the list can go on and on of how the gospel changes everything. That's what it does. It changes everything in our lives. So this is the beginning of what it looks like to be redeemed, to be forgiven of sin. And then we begin to grow. We begin to grow, and as we grow, we commune with God. And what I mean by commune with God is that we are growing in our knowledge of who he is. We grow in our knowledge of who he is. And we do this by opening up our word. We do this by memorizing scripture, meditating on it, praying over it. We do this by experiencing the Holy Spirit's conviction in our lives as he uses people around us or convicts us through his word. And we grow as we live in community with other gospel-centered disciples around us. So it can look like this. Here's our life. Here's our growth. We grow in our awareness of God's holiness. And in growing in our awareness of God's holiness, we grow in our awareness of our own sin and our own flesh. So I'll write this here. Now, what I don't mean by this is that God's holiness is growing. That's not the case. God's holiness is the same today, yesterday, tomorrow. His character doesn't change. But as we grow in our communion with him, as we grow in our knowledge of him, we begin to see more and more of his holiness. We begin to become more and more aware of it. And what I mean by our sin in our flesh is that we become more and more aware of how deep the rabbit trail runs with our sin, how every facet of life is tangled up in sin. And so as we grow in our awareness of holiness, and our awareness of sin. Our understanding begins to deepen and our appreciation for Jesus and our love for him begins to grow as well. We appreciate that he mediated for us. We appreciate the sacrifice that he gave for us. We appreciate his righteousness that has been imputed to us. And we begin to appreciate his gracious work on the cross. She says, the cross gets bigger in our lives. And more central, we begin to rejoice in the Savior who did it for us. And so it looks like this. As the cross gets bigger. As we focus on Jesus and his love and what he has done for us, the cross Gets bigger. And our sin in our flesh, we begin to put it to death because we see the goodness of who God is in Jesus. Now, I wish I could tell you that that was was it, right? That's the Christian life, gospel centered life. Let's go. But I have to talk about something that we don't often talk about in church. We try to here is what we call indwelling sin. The reason we do confession every week is because we are trying to help you see that a rhythm of life for you should be to see your sin, see your flesh, and see God's holiness and confess that in understanding that there are still things that we battle with. There's still things that we deal with. There's still things that we are trying to put to death. There, there are things that I'll give this example, like an iceberg. There's like 10% that we can see within our lives, and then the Holy Spirit reveals. That other 90% and you're like, I am never going to get this. Because there's areas of our life that have not been revealed yet or have not been exposed by the light. And this is why it's important to be in gospel-centered community. This is why it's important to know your Bible and, and, and ask the Holy Spirit as David does. Search me, O oh God. You ever notice when Dwayne was talking about Psalm 130, it's either 6 or 9, but where David says, search me, O oh God. He's not telling God to search him as if God doesn't know David's heart. What David is doing is saying, search me, oh God, so that I can see where areas in my life are against you, where sin is still there, where I need to repent and I need to bring this to you and let go of the idols in my life. So this is what happens is we still have this battle of indwelling sin. And it leads us to forget. And it leads us to minimize the cross. That, that old hymn, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. I mean, what, what a great line. I don't think that there's a better line that encapsulates our, in, our life as a believer and the indwelling sin that we have, that we are still prone to wander, that we are still prone to leave the God we love. And I want to show you Two ways in which I think we do this. my marker. We do this through performance. and and we could do both, or we do this through pretending. This is what I want to show you what it does in our lives when we do that. We minimize the cross. We begin to make it smaller. And as we make it smaller, we begin to lose our affections for the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that we lose our affections as if we are no longer saved. But we can minimize the cross in which we begin to perform or to pretend. And this is just make the cross smaller. And this is our life. When we forget the gospel. I want to give you examples of how we can do this. And I'm going to do that by asking you a couple questions. We'll start with pretending. This is what I mean by that. What do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility? What do you you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility? Or to feel good enough? Here's a couple of things I wrote down. We have a sense of job righteousness. I work hard. Therefore, God will and should reward me. We have a sense of family righteousness. I do the right thing as a parent, therefore I am more godly than other parents who can't control their kids. We have a sense of theological righteousness. I have good theology, therefore God prefers me over those who have bad theology. Intellectual righteousness. I'm a better read, I'm more articulate, I'm more cultural savvy which makes me more superior to those around me. Schedule righteousness. I am very self-disciplined and righteous in my time, or rigorous, I'm sorry, in my time, which makes me more mature and more righteous. Righteous um, Flexibility righteousness. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible, I'm relaxed. I always make time for others, so shame on those who don't. Sense of mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and the disadvantaged the way that everyone should. Therefore, I am more Christ-like. A sense of legalistic righteousness. I don't drink, smoke, chew, or date guys and girls that do. And too many Christians just aren't concerned about their holiness like I am. Political righteousness. If you really love God, why would you vote for that candidate? tolerant righteousness i am more open minded and charitable towards those who don't agree with me therefore i am more like jesus than those who aren't there's plenty more you guys can know yourselves you you can probably write out a list of where you think you find credibility in pretending or where you feel like you're good enough or make yourself good enough then there's the performance aspect. Ask yourself this question. As God looks at you right now, this day, this morning, where or what is the look on his face? How do you answer that? Is he angry? Is he disappointed? Is he indifferent? Is he asking, why haven't you got yourself together? These are ways in which we minimize the cross and find our own righteousness in pretending or performing. But here's the truth, guys, for both the pretender and the performer. And some of you in here might fit into both. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, you are an adopted son of, and daughter of God. You're pretending your performance is not what makes God pleased with you. He is pleased with you because of what Christ has done and then your faith in Christ has adopted you into this family. So in Jesus, your identity is in him and you are complete and God's pleased with you. You don't have to have it all together because guess what, if we're honest, we don't. I mean, Christmas should be a great example to show us that we do not have it all together. And I mean more of the Christmas season, not just Christmas itself. For those who pretend, you don't have to pretend anymore. You are good and you are righteous because of Christ. You don't have to Try to show the world of your goodness. And for those of you who perform, I want you to know that God is pleased with you because of Christ. He's deeply satisfied in you and he approves of you. There's plenty of scriptures that show that God delights in his sons and daughters because of what Christ has done. And so you don't have to perform anymore. You see, when we put our identity in anything but the gospel, we begin to shrink the cross. We begin to minimize it. And the gospel becomes small. And to be honest with you, a lot of times, even in my own life, I think that's my problem. Is that I have made the cross small. When there are things that are revealed in my life, whether it's control or anger or frustration it's oftentimes because I have made the cross small and made myself big. And so the solution is to go back to the gospel. The solution is to look to the cross, to preach to ourselves day in and day out. I know I've said this before, but there should be two preachers in your life, one on Sunday morning and you yourself throughout the week preaching the gospel to yourself That you don't have to pretend. That you don't have to perform in order to be good enough. Another solution is to go to God's word. One of the greatest examples I think Dwayne ever said. I know that's outlandish. I feel like I sound like Dwayne there. Anyways... um, one of the greatest examples is he, I think he's ever given in regards to trying to show how important the word of God is, is this. Most of you guys are married and, you're war, and or engaged in a relationship, whatnot. If when you began to date your significant other, if you were told, hey, I have a book that is going to tell you everything about your person of interest, wouldn't you, wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't you study that? Wouldn't you memorize it, take that in so that you can know everything about that person in order that you can love them well, know them well, commune with them well? This is what the Bible is for us. God has given us a book that reveals all of who he is in his character and his nature and has shown us and revealed to us these things in order that we can have good and right communion with him. So this is what I mean that when I say from Colossians that we need to grow in our communion with God through right knowledge of God. And my fear when I say that is this. My fear is that when we hear about the knowledge of God, we think we're going to become puffed up we think that we're going to become like the Pharisees. If I read this word, if I study it, if I meditate if I become legalistic about this thing that I am going to be like the Pharisees, therefore I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. Or if I read more theological books or things that are going to help me know about theology, then I'm going to become a Pharisee and I'm going to become cold hearted and dead and I don't want to do that. Anybody like that in here? Anybody want to become a Pharisee in here? No? Okay, good. That's, we're right there. I mean, because this, I mean, the Bible is, is pretty clear on how it views the Pharisees. But I want to, say, I want to show you that there's, there's a misunderstanding about them. But the first thing before we get into that is this. I, I think that we have this fear of becoming the Pharisees because we are Bible illiterate. And I don't mean that we're Bible illiterate as if we can't read. I, I believe that everybody in here could read, minus the kids in the back on Tim's lap. Most of them can. I heard them. Um, but what I mean by this is that we, we can academically read, but we're, we're illiterate in our relationship with the Lord. We're lacking in our communion with God. JT English, a pastor out in Texas, says this, how can we love a God we don't know? He goes on to say that Bible literacy is not a crisis of intellect. It's a crisis of the heart. It's not a crisis of the mind, but a crisis of our affections. Is that me? It's got to be me. We think that in knowledge, we're going to get puffed up. And so we try to avoid that. Because we see these Pharisees as wrong characters. We see these Pharisees as cold-hearted, as antagonistic. I'm going to stop moving. It's going to be really hard. But here's the deal. I think we misunderstand the Pharisees. I think we misunderstand them not in that they didn't have knowledge of God because they didn't. And I'm going to read you a passage to show that they didn't. They didn't have right knowledge of God. They actually had an ignorance of of who God was. That's why they were cold-hearted. They weren't zealous for knowledge, but they were zealous for ignorance. And a pharisee is, is that. Is not someone who is zealous about knowledge, but zealous about ignorance. Flip over to Romans chapter 2. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10 verses 1 through 3. I want to show you what Paul has to say about this. Paul, a Pharisee himself, Has this to say. Romans 10, starting in verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You see, they were ignorant. Oftentimes, we think that the Pharisees knew everything and that knowing everything led them to be cold-hearted. But in fact, it is that zeal of ignorance. They didn't understand the righteousness of God because they didn't understand what the Bible was saying. And so I, I, I bid you guys, please know your Bibles, read them, meditate on them, go back to them. And this is why I want you guys to be like this. This is, this is why I, 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 just, I, I have a passion for you guys to know God's word, and here's why. Verse 10 says this, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing in him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. My hope, my goal, not just for this series, but for your lives as believers, is that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and that you would bear fruit. And this is what I mean by bear fruit. This is where we're going to kind of get into the everyday life of our church. And I'm going to touch on these topics and then we're going to close out here with communion. But when I say that we bear fruit, is we're bearing fruit in our vision, in worship in community, in service, in multiplication. We're bearing fruit in worship, not just how we sing, but how we live our lives. Romans 12 tells us that we, we transform our lives by the renewing of our mind, which is, again, knowledge of who God is. And that is our act of worship. It's how we live. Is The knowledge of who God is leads us to joy, and joy leads us to living in such a way that's worthy of the gospel. So my hope is that we would live as people who are worshiping, and that worship would fuel our love to belong. And so when we talk about community here, it's not just coming here and gathering, which I think is great and important and is a part of the Christian life. It's not just coming to community groups, which I'm super excited about because God has blessed us from three to now five, and we praise him for that. It's a being part of those things, but it's also understanding that community means belonging. And what I mean by belonging is opening up your life and sharing the deepest, darkest areas, knowing that the people that God has placed around you is there to help build you up and to bear your burdens together. These are people that you would call when your kid has pneumonia. These are people that you call when you need to confess sin and say, hey man, I I did something so stupid and I need you to hold me accountable. And you do this because you know that they have your best interest. They have a love for you because of the gospel. Because they have been transformed by the gospel. These are people that you give a sword to. To defend you, not to harm you. You bear fruit through service. You bear fruit in service in this church and in the world around you. When we talk about being a member here and committing to one another here and covenanting to each other, we are saying that we are going to try to live as best as we can the 53 or 59 one another's within the New Testament, that we're gonna love one another. We're gonna to try to outdo one another in honor. We're gonna to sing to each other. We are gonna serve one another. This is what service looks like inside the church. And as Jesus says, the world will know my love by who? My disciples and how they love one another. But service also goes outside of these walls, outside of this church, into the world around us. Understanding that as Acts 17 shows us that God has placed us where we are in this time, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our families, to be lights into a dark world. And we serve and we share the gospel and we live out what we believe in hopes that God would transform our circles of influence. And we multiply, we multiply ourselves. And I don't mean that to be very man-centered. I mean that in the way that Paul says it. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's a scary statement because we know ourselves. I know Paul knew himself, but as we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, we are bringing people alongside us, discipling them, helping them grow to be gospel-centered disciples and praying that the Lord would multiply praying that our church would multiply with these gospel-centered disciples, but praying our neighborhoods and where we are would multiply and the kingdom would grow. This is what it means when we talk about being a gospel-centered disciple, is one who worships, who belongs, who serves, and who multiplies. this This is what we're gonna be walking through in the next couple of weeks. My prayer for us as we walk through this sermon series is that as we see this mosaic here, that these pieces would begin to come together and form something beautiful within this church. That God as the great artist would show us ways in which our worship fuels our belonging. And that belonging leads us to serve one another and those around us. And that serving leads us to multiplying into a a greater group of gospel-centered disciples. So that's my hope and my prayer. And I hope that as you guys are here this week and as you guys continue on this month and as we continue through 2020, this is your prayer too that you would want and long to grow into a gospel-centered disciple, that one who sees the cross big in your lives, and you see that this gospel changes everything in your life. And as it changes everything, you want to go and share. As the saying goes, we are just one beggar telling another beggar about the bread that we've received. So in this time, I want to close out the same way that we close every week, by sharing the bread. And it's funny to me, I, you guys may have not have noticed this, but um, even as a church, we we try to get past the performance and the pretending, right? A lot of times we we do try to put on this, I don't know, face that we're a church that has it all together, which... I mean, if, you're, if you know me, Dwayne, we don't. I don't want to show you how we don't have it all together. You'll notice that we've got kid's cups for communion this week. It's just another week that reminds us that, hey, yes, we are a church plant. Yes, sometimes we just, we miss our orders. We just do things in which like, all right, here we are. We've got to do this because we want to take communion. But I want to show you, even, even for us, we battle these things when the cross is big in our lives, we can look at something like that and go, okay, God, God is still good. We're still gonna take communion. We're still gonna be reminded of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And we're just gonna praise him. And next week, hopefully, we'll have some plastic cups. <laughs> and so this is, this is what we mean. And this is what we try to live out. And so we're gonna take communion this morning. And as we do every single week, I want you guys to, to think deeply on communion. That is, yes, it's an act of remembrance. Yes, it's a grace received. But it's also a time when we look back, where we look around and we look forward. We look back at what, this right here. We look back that there was once a gap because of our sin and God's holiness. And Christ bridged that gap for us. On the cross, through his blood, he made a way. And then we look around, because we look around and say, hey, these are my people. These are people that I have covenanted with who will be with me in glory. These people, even if I'm frustrated with them, they're going to they're gonna be with me for eternity. So I got to do something about it. But these are my people. And then we look forward as we sing and as we worship and as we take this bread it is a reminder that one day we will be feasting. And it's funny, I don't know if it was one of the kids um, that talked about how when they take the bread, they're not full. Communion is not supposed to make you full. It's actually supposed to make you long for more. And the spiritual longing for more is that feast that one day will come where we will be with all the saints in eternity praising the lamb for what he has done and celebrating at the feast of the table. So this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna take some time. There's sin that needs to be repented of and, 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 and brought to the Lord. I want you to take some time to do that. If there are relationships that need to be reconciled, the Bible is clear, go and reconcile them before you come to the table. Or if there's just a time of reflection that you need to take and you're asking, Lord, search me, show me where I need to, Repent of my sin. Take some time. And then you guys can get up and you can take the bread, take the juice, bring it back. And then I'll walk us through what the word has to say. And we'll take it together and then we'll worship together, okay? So take some time. I'll close us in prayer and then um, we can take take the communion. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel and how it changes everything in our lives. Lord, I pray as we walk away from this day that we, we would see that. We would, if we haven't seen that, we would ask you that, to reveal that to us. We would ask that you would shine the light of the gospel into the darkest places of our lives. So that those places can be uprooted, so those things can be changed by the light of life. Lord, I thank you for these people thank you that you have called them yours. Lord, I pray that you would comfort them and show them that in pretending and in performance, they don't have to do those things in order to be good, but you have made them good by your work on the cross, your good and perfect work on the cross. And Lord, I pray that as we walk daily, this slow obedience in the same direction, Lord, that the cross would be made big. that you would be made big and our affections would grow and be stirred for you. pray for this next month as we learn what it means to be a gospel-centered disciple through worship and community and service and multiplication. You would stir our affections for you. May this be a launching point for our church that we grow deep roots into the gospel and we would be a church marked by that gospel. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys want to take some time, you can, and then just go to the table. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us proclaim his death this morning. And if you would, you don't have to, just stand in worship as we look to what we will be doing in eternity. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church? At